I'm Anthony Walsh and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the show where we empower you with the tools to optimize your health, your happiness and your longevity. Today I chat with Paul Dermody, an expert in nutrition and fitness coaching. If you're tired of strict diets, constant tracking and generic fitness advice, then Paul, he's your man. Paul's coaching style revolves around empowering people to make confident decisions about their food that will last a lifetime. From chatting to him, you get very fast that he understands that calorie balance is just one aspect of our dynamic nature as human beings. He believes in moving towards weight loss and weight management without rigid rules and practices. Now, when I started out this podcast, I had a guiding light, a vision of having engaging long form conversations, like a throwback to the conversations I had around the dinner table with my dad when I was a kid. They used to just go on for hours and hours. This is Paul's second appearance on the podcast. Conversations like this very conversation today, it gives me real pride that I'm moving this podcast towards that goal of unfiltered long form conversations that I started out to achieve. Here's a little taste of what awaits you today. Life is constant evolution and constant growth. And I've always kind of joked with myself, if I am the same person in two years down the line, five years down the line, I consider that to be a wasted couple of years. To me, it sounds like you've struck a very nice set of values whereby you can dip into that wisdom that you have. Like it's one thing to be toilet trained. It's another thing to know when you yourself need to use the loo. That's not how calorie balance works. It's kind of like throwing away, you know, throwing away 500 euros out of frustration because you spent a tenner you weren't planning on and then starting saving tomorrow. But human psychology is a wonderful sprinkle of complexity. I mean, I look at it this way and I would love if I could inject anyone and everyone who wants to lose a bit of weight with a philosophy, it would probably be this. Paul, welcome back to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Man, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks a million. Uh, we were talking briefly about money off air and this idea of needing it and not needing it. Uh, I reread George Orwell's 1984 book not too long ago. And one of the parts that always stands out for me in that is that idea of double think. It's to hold two ideas simultaneously, knowing them to be contradictory, but believing them both. And when I think about your dietary philosophy, I actually think about this idea of double think as well, because it's so underpinned on the one hand by restraint and on the other hand by flexibility. And they do seem two opposing forces that most people struggle to grapple with and go, well, both these can't be true, but your dietary philosophy makes them both true. Black and white thinking is very common in people's dietary approach. It's one thing that I'm hoping that I can get my clients away from. And I kind of consider black and white thinking to be when two conflicting values can't coexist. So it might seem like weight management, for example, and social connection, a social life can't seemingly coexist. I think one of the heights of a very calm mind is to not see things in terms of black and white absolutes and instead to see things in the context. I, I started reading to go back George Orwell's 1984, just before Christmas. I'm only about halfway through it. And you've just reminded me that I need to go back and actually finish it. It's a crazy I, book. It is. And I'm not a big fiction reader. And it was the f first one that actually caught my attention that I thought, this sounds like it's right up my alley. But it looks, it's really good so far. And I don't know why I put it down. I assume you've read the whole thing. I read it years ago. And then I'm the exact same as you. I'm a kind of a self-help nut is my genre. And my girlfriend, Sarah, who's now co-hosting the podcast on a Friday with me, she's always on at me, like, turn off your brain. Like, you don't need to fill every moment with some sort of productivity, with this idea of Japanese use that word kaizen, the constant need for self-progress. She's like, you don't need to do that. You can take a half an hour where you read Harry Potter, where you walk the dogs and you don't have a podcast on, where you're not constantly trying to better yourself. And that's been a journey for me to actually stop and think, okay, it's okay to have this time. It's not dead time. It's okay to be bored because boredom is an evolutionary function that has existed all those iterations we've made from when Darwin first discovered it onwards. And we maintain this idea of boredom as a trait to this day. So it does have a purpose. And I think we've, we've drowned out that purpose. We've quietened that purpose. You see guys in a pub and they're going for a piss and they're taking out their phone. 
they don't want to be bored for those two seconds that they're having a piss or they're scrolling on WhatsApp. And it's like, boredom is real. Like we need boredom in our lives. What do you do for escapism? So I ride my bike and it's a little bit of a, a busman's holiday, but I ride my bike alone with no headphones in. And cycling's been so many different things to me though, that people are like, oh, you ride your bike. Like, does that not feel like work? And it definitely at one point in my life, it did feel like work because I was going out and it was so performance metric driven where I was looking all day long, heart rate, power. I had a definite goal every time I left the house to go out the door and that fit into a bigger picture. But now I can ride my bike for, you know, I'll head out the door for anything between half an hour and eight hours, like with no goal, just going, all right, I'm going to see what's at the end of the road. I'm going to see how I feel when I get there. And I'm going to turn and see how I feel when I get there. And especially gravel cycling, it's kind of like, you know, mountain running. It's this just constantly evolving discipline where you're actually not too sure what the day holds in store because you don't know these routes. And they're really difficult to even ride the same route twice because it's not like, hey, turn left at Garrettstown. It's like, turn left at that tree stump. Oh no, they moved that tree stump. I missed my left turn. Now I've added on like two and a half hours to my loop. Are you familiar with Derek Sivers? No, never heard of him. He's an author, but I don't know if it's the same thing. He has a, a story he shares quite a bit that he used to be super competitive and he'd go out and try and obsessively finish this. I think it's a cycling route as well in 45 minutes and he always had to beat it and he went crazy. And then after such and such an amount of time of trying to obsessively beat it, he finally went out for a leisurely cycle and just had fun and just decided to enjoy it. Then he realized he completed it in like a minute less than his best time anyway. And he realized when he just slowed into the process and actually enjoyed the process, it was equally as enriching and there was no pressure on him and he still did it quite as well, almost as well as the previous experience. Because it's funny when you do repeat stuff like that, whether, you know, we talked about rereading George Orwell or redoing the same route. It's like that old Stoic saying, a man never walks in the same river twice because it's never the same river and it's never the same man. It's always a very different experience for me. Oh, totally. I think... Life is constant evolution and constant growth. And I've always kind of joked with myself, if I am the same person two years down the line, five years down the line, I consider that to be a wasted couple of years. But I, I found myself being much less of the productivity hack, productivity guru, certainly in the last few years. This is not me judging it in any way. I'm just kind of saying it for my life. I've actually found it almost slightly distasteful. I just, I've seen a different side to it in the last few years. A lot of it, I think falls around manipulating the insecure part in our brains. And I've kind of almost just distanced myself as much of, as I can from... Essentially, what I'm trying to get at is I have found a, a very much a system that works for me of three, four, maybe five hours of deep work every day and not a lot more. And I find a lot of productivity stuff lends itself to never allowing yourself to switch off and relax. But I consider relaxing to be the other side of the coin as well. Yeah, that is maturity needed to get there. And if someone had told me that five years ago when I was trying to build businesses, when I was trying to raise venture capital rounds for companies, I would have been like, you old washed up motherfucker. Like, what do you know? Like, you've just run out of steam. But I'm I'm more on your side of the fence now than ever where I need to prioritize that stuff. And I've been playing around with this idea and I haven't executed on it perfectly yet, but it's something I keep coming back to because I think there's value in it. I think there's seasons to everything. And I know your Instagram account is brilliant and you put out these long form posts, which always are thought provoking for me. And I often will read one and, you know, go ride the bike and just think about what did he mean by that? Because I know you always have two or three meanings into stuff. But I've come back to this idea that even productivity or creativity, it has seasons, like the same way nature has seasons, that we have a season to plant seeds, we have a season to water them, we have a season they blossom, and then we have a season they die. So I'm starting to look at my work a little bit like that as well. So I'm trying to structure my months where I'm working for three weeks and then having a week off to recharge and to have experiences that I can live that will come back and inform the podcast. There's, there's a brilliant scene in one of my favorite movies, Goodwill Hunting, where he's on the bench and he's talking to Matt Damon, the main character, in it, and he's like, well, what's the Sistine Chapel like? And he can give him every bit of history of the Sistine Chapel. And he's like, I bet you, you can't tell me what it smells like in the morning when they first open the doors because you've never been there. And I'm very aware of that, that I, in the course of having conversations six days a week on the podcast, I need to be living a life to inform these conversations and add texture to these conversations and depth and perspective to them. It can't all be researched through YouTube videos because it's just going to get boring. 
I definitely agree about living life. I hold that similar value in my own life. And I also think as someone like yourself, a very hungry man, knowing the difference between a healthy amount of ambition and then when that crosses into greed for your own sanity, if nothing else, you know, whatever about having enough, which is a very difficult line to find in the first place, because we were kind of speaking just before we pressed record about how you literally change your identity the further you get closer to a goal. And if you set a goal that's way off in the future, you can't obviously anticipate who you're going to be to get there. Like when you make your first sale in business, 10,000 euro annually sounds like a lot of money if you don't have a penny. But if somebody, yeah. if you're, if you're doing well now, stepping back to 10 grand would obviously be a step down. You know, I always think about that contextually, like uh, many people will spend their lives, you know, building towards trying to become a millionaire, for example, because of, you know, it's a, it's a nice goal to aim for. It can be done over a long period of time. And to, to a lot of people, it's a North star of say career achievement or capital achievement. But then if Cristiano Ronaldo woke up tomorrow with a million euro in his account, he'd throw himself out the window. And I always find it interesting how circumstances change based on where you are in your life. But you know, you can, and you should, in my opinion, put aside a few years of your life to build something. I know I've done it in the past. I could never tell someone, you know, you shouldn't worry about anything. Like I, I have deliberately put away three or four years of my life, almost like a mentality of close your eyes for three years and then wake up in three years and then start living a little bit more. I know I do a lot of the things that you were saying, uh, very personal to me, obviously, but that kind of, can you smell the inside of the Sistine Chapel rather than read about it? That's, re that's a very important philosophy to me too. But it's only been possible because I did do the whole sell your car, you know, and get rid of a lot of things. And I don't, I don't ever talk about this really on podcasts, partly because I don't like attaching myself to any ism or any title. But I have like six t-shirts now, maybe four pairs of trousers, a few pairs of shorts. I have a backpack that I travel with now. My belongings have gone progressively little, progressively less, pardon, to the point where my last move from Ireland back to Spain was just uh, a backpack and nothing else to it. And I can't imagine owning the amount of things that I owned, say, four or five years ago. But if you'd have asked me four or five years ago, would I own six or seven t-shirts? I'd have said, you're a madman. And I always think it's interesting how your identity changes along with the journey. And I think it's cool. I think give yourself permission to change your mind as you go. Like, I mean, you can't anticipate who you're going to be and how you're going to change your mind and maybe what goal you're going to accomplish that won't fulfill you because you're going to be looking at the next thing. And so, yeah. I'm right into the meat of the season at the moment. I finished the Ross. That's in my rear view mirror now. And I was moving super well. I was very competitive despite my protracted absence from that level of racing. Now, I don't want to fall into the trap that I see many riders falling into. Just riding around with no focus or aim and meeting up with friends and having coffee simply because the good weather has arrived. I'm continuing to use my Watt bike almost daily to keep me sharp and on point with specific sessions all the way through to my target events. I can't wait for the Rift and Leadville later this summer. That's why I'm really happy to be continuing my partnership with Watt Bike. The Watt Bike, Adam, it's in my recording studio right beside the new desk. And if I have an hour between interviews, I jump on. It removes all the friction points. I've no more 10 minutes set up, unfolding legs, banging my knees off stuff, no more connection issues. It just works every single time. Adam's perfect for Zwift racing too. I have the big TV set up here and I love those crisp gear changes. It has 1% power accuracy and a max gradient capability of 25%, even if my legs don't have a 25% max gradient capability. Even when I'm over there riding those steepest climbs on Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm actually riding the custom gearing setup. If you get a Watt bike, definitely play around with that. It's so suitable for those really hilly Watopia stages. If you're looking for an indoor bike trainer, I couldn't recommend this any higher. It's the very last indoor bike trainer that you're ever going to need. Absolutely phenomenal. If you head on over to whatbike.com and you use the code ROADMAN10 at checkout, you're now going to get 10% off the Whatbike Atom. So that's ROADMAN10 at checkout and you're going to get 10% off the Whatbike Atom. All the details for that offer are in today's show notes. I rode the bike last year. I was in uh, an event we talked about off-air Badlands. I was down in Granada. And I was there with a friend and I'd had a mechanical and it didn't go as planned for me. So we were sitting in Granada and I had another group of friends who were in Biarritz. So for anyone not geographically familiar, all the way through Spain, up onto the Italian border. So directly north from Granada. And we were sitting there and we we're kind of looking up train timetables and my buddy's like, why don't we just ride up? And I was like, that's a long ride. 
because they're riding from Biarritz down to Girona, which is another couple of hundred kilometers, a bit more. So all in all, I think we had 2,400 kilometers and we had 10 days to cover it. So we were looking at 240 odd kilometers a day with the route we chose. And I was like, okay, let's do it. So we jumped on our bikes and we rode sort of 10 hours a day on our gravel bikes. But like two or three days in, I realized how little stuff I had with me and how little stuff I needed. Like I had a t-shirt, a pair of flip-flops, which I lost like after 50 kilometers. And I was like, okay, well that simplifies things because my flip-flops are gone. So now I'm walking barefoot when I get to my destination in the evenings. But I had shorts, t-shirts and my kit that I was riding in during the day, which was a pair of shorts and a jersey. I just washed them out every evening and wore them again the next day. And I find myself in Ireland, I'm you know, going to go riding after this podcast. And I know already getting kitted for it is going to be a hoop along. And I'd be like, oh, where's their shorts? Where's their matching jersey? Of, And I've got probably a hundred sets lying around the house. I'm like, you need so little to be functional and to be happy. And that trip has really been one of those inflection points that's changed my outlook on how much we actually need in life. In a different way, I'm the same. I've been fortunate enough to have a couple of experience that have altered my perspective. And I don't know, it just seems to be less clutter, less, less mental space occupied less thinking about things, you know, less friction. Even when you talk about some of the thought-provoking posts, which is very kind of you, I have to say, if I encourage my clients to try and be somewhat repetitive in their nutrition, maybe eat very similar breakfast and lunch every single day, it can remove a lot of that kind of mental chatter by just having that predictability, by knowing exactly what you're going to do, certainly even in the first half of the day, and then maybe be a bit more flexible in the evening or something. But progress by kind of subtraction rather than addition is a kind of a mindset that I like. And that's a nice segue, actually. So I raced this year. It's kind of my first year back racing at a high level. And I don't know where the itch came from, but I was like, no, I want to get back into racing. Some of the, the top kids are 17, 18, 19 years old. And, you know, I'm late 30s now, and I've been away from that top level racing for three, four years. So I came back, and the first race I done was an Easter one. It was a four-day race. And I looked at the numbers afterwards, and I was like, okay, I'm going to need to lose six kilograms to be competitive for my kind of target event, which is a Ross, the Tour of Ireland, six weeks later. And I was like, okay, I have six weeks to lose six kilograms. It's not ideal situation here, but I was like, it's definitely doable. But I went to that kind of subtraction mentality. And I don't mean that from a strict calorie deficit point of view. Obviously, there had to be a calorie deficit to lose the weight. But I just really simplified it. I ate the same breakfast, the same lunch, and the same dinner every single day. And I didn't find that that difficult to do or that much of a stretch And I was reminded by a phrase in our last time we spoke that really stuck with me about the idea of sustainability. I think you used the term that sustainability, if you're saving for a mortgage, you can save 90% of your disposable income for a period of 12 months, and then you can flick back to sustainable spending patterns. You don't have to do it forever. So I was kind of encouraged by that going, well, this isn't forever. This is a six-week period where I'm going to eat like this, and then I'm going to shift back to eating normal. What's the kind of pros and cons of that style of eating where you're eating the exact same thing every day of the week? I think it more comes down to less the specifics in terms of eat exactly the same foods. The, the first thing is you don't want to see it through the perspective of it being a mandatory rule. You want to see it through the eyes of maybe a flexible guideline. And that while that sounds trivial, I think that might be arguably the most important point because your perspective is going to be the most important factor in it. And if you're happy and you're voluntarily engaging in a process for a short-term goal, then that's fantastic because like a weight loss goal is by its nature a short-term goal. But then you're going to have your long-term values, which are more so like your sustained reasons for eating, for example. So if there's a period of time where you want to really tighten up and maybe flex a little bit more restraint rather than a little bit more flexibility in pursuit of something in the more short to medium term, can be a very healthy thing to do. If you're talking about how to get that nice balance, what I've seen people struggle with is that after plan, so to speak. But I do think it comes down to, say, the absence of, like, I go back to it, personal values, right? If you don't know what's important to you, if you don't know your how your nourishment, your weight management goals, your social life, um, if you don't know how they all kind of coexist in the long run, it's very hard to come up with something very sustainable. And I mean, it's a perfect opportunity for me to ask you, when you're doing your so-called body fat cutting diet versus say your habitual diet, 
in my opinion, generally speaking, you want them to be somewhat similar, but maybe the portion size slightly differs. Was, was your body fat loss diet very similar to your habitual diet? No, it was quite different. And I'll be totally honest with you. I found it, I've continued it similar diet post events now because I found it totally liberating uh, in, in the same sense that when I woke up on the bike packing trip every day, I had no choice. I'm like, well, this is the only kit I have. So this is the kit I'm going to wear today. I just woke up every morning and I still literally just before this podcast, I had two turkey burgers, three scrambled eggs and a piece of toast. And it's like every morning I've been having that breakfast and I love it. Like I, I never wake up and think, oh, I, I'm not looking forward to eating turkey burgers again. I really enjoy the turkey burgers. And I don't feel hungry until it comes time to lunch and I have some yogurt with some seeds and some fruit and a scoop of protein powder in that. And that keeps me full till dinner. And then I'm having rice, chicken, veg at dinner with some sriracha sauce. And it's like, boom. It just, I don't know, it's, it's like cleared mental clutter for me where I don't have this oh, what are we going to have for dinner tonight? Like we'll pull out a cookbook. Let's go through the cookbook. That was just stress. Now, the part I have relaxed post-event is if uh, my girlfriend Sarah will say to me, hey, do you want to go out for dinner tonight? I'm like, boom, let's do it. And I'll go out and I'll have a steak and I'll have some chips or I'll have a burger where I wasn't doing that in the run-up to the event. Or maybe I'll, like it's a nice day, I'll go out and have an ice cream with her. I wasn't doing that stuff. But it's really been a liberating discovery for me, this idea of just standardizing what I'm eating every day. Yeah, so it kind of ties in, in one sense, what I was asking before that your, say, weight loss approach is kind of similar to your post-weight loss approach in that the, the spine of it sounds like it's the same. The value shifted a little bit more towards weight loss for a very intense period of time. And then the value shifted a little bit more, not completely away from weight loss, but obviously going out for dinner with your girlfriend. Like not every meal needs to be goal-oriented when you're living a normal life, right? As long as the spine of your nutrition is pretty solid and it kind of checks the boxes for general health and well-being and nourishment, there's no reason every meal needs to be goal-oriented. You should be able to have something with your girlfriend or you know, to have a slice of birthday cake at someone's party or something to that effect, or have a drink with a friend. So to me, it sounds like you've struck a very nice set of values whereby you can dip into that wisdom that you have. Like it's one thing to be toilet trained. It's another thing to know when you yourself need to use the loo. And I do consider nutrition in some sense to be the same. You, you want people to be, foster their own autonomy. Uh, you want people to be able to make decisions. Like you might have a spontaneous urge or a spontaneous craving today. And let's say your traditional diet culture conditioning, if that's what you want to call it, say, it might have you think that cravings or urges or even a certain food is wrong or inherently bad, but it's normal. It's probably the most normal thing in the world. And if you can just, you know, there's, there's a space between that, that stimulus and whatever you choose. And in that space is the ability to think about it and make a choice. And look, if you find yourself that it's come on suddenly and you're a little bit we'll say feeling spontaneous, you might take a step back and think, do you know what? Now is the time to flex restraint. Now is the time to say no. Whereas you might find yourself spontaneously invited out to dinner with your girlfriend and you might think now is the time to say yes. And only you can really honor those decisions and honor those values in a way that actually enhance your life. That's why I actually think diet rules tend to destroy people and their relationship with food and the relationship with their body. They're kind of these arbitrary, aimless, strict mandates that don't cater in any way for the psychology of the person that leave people feeling isolated and disconnected and lonely and rather cruelly and definitely ironically further from the desired result physiologically emotionally psychologically especially when you consider most crash dieters tend to accumulate more adipose tissue more body fat tissue than when they actually started so well i think what is that paulo is that the mentality of because when I think about someone that's, I love, my dad struggled with weight loss for years, still does. He lost his toe in an accident when he was in his late 30s and he's always struggled with weight. And now in the last few years, it's just, it's such a stark reminder for me that you need to stay on health. There's no period you can put it down and say, oh, I'll pick it up next year because that's what he'd done. He'd go on these like, oh, you know, I'm prioritizing other stuff. I'm coming up to retirement. And then when I retire, I'll start getting back on the bike and I'll start focusing on it then. And then he had a clot in his leg, really has reduced his mobility to the point where he can't walk very much, can't cycle very much. And now that's his vehicle for, you know, in his term, getting the weight off again. That was his vehicle for it. And that's severely affected his mental health. So when I think about people on a diet, off a diet, for me, that's always seems to be accompanied by like a boom and bust cycle that it's going, how's your diet? Oh, it's absolutely perfect. Or how's your diet? it's in absolute shit. There's no middle grounds for it. And 
I don't anticipate I'd ever talk to you and ask you, how is your diet? And you'd be like, it's absolutely perfect or it's absolutely shit. It's probably somewhere right in the middle of those two, 99% of the time. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. That sounds like such a difficult position to be in. And, you know, I know a lot of people who that kind of traditional diet conditioning has affected. So it's always a hard thing to hear. Um, and, you know, it's a hard conversation to have as well because, you know, especially when you're not living at home anymore because uh, you don't want every interaction. Like my dad's 72 now and, you know, not in a morbid way, but more in a stoic, you know, there's a limited shelf life on all of us. He's not going to be around forever. And it's like, what do I want the quality of those interactions to be? Do I want every time I see my dad to be me standing on a pedestal and lecturing him about how his lifestyle and dietary choices aren't serving his health at the moment. Like it's just, it's a shit interaction to have. So at a certain point, I just had to make peace and say, you know what, if he comes to me and he asks for help, like, fuck it, I'll drop everything and I'll be there to help him in any way I can. But he has to want to change that. Like an alcoholic, you know, he has to want to change that. I can't give him that motivation. At least that's the, the sort of piece I'm making in my head where it maybe I can give him that motivation and I should be trying harder, but I, I'm not. It's challenging, isn't it? When you're watching somebody that you love, maybe engage in a, in a few behaviors that you feel that are detrimental to them. It's hard for you, but you've definitely got enough wisdom to know all you can do is be there for somebody if they decide to come to you and they, you know, they feel safe to come to you with a with an issue and then maybe you will sufficiently support them. I don't know if you agree. One thing I have noticed, family dynamics tend not to be the way that these things get solved in any way, I think it needs to generally come come from outside assistance. I just think family dynamics are not, not messy in terms of like, you're not able to do it, but just the relationship itself doesn't lend itself to that requirement, at least I've found anyway. It's so hard. And then you have these big family events that come along, like not always necessarily positive. My mom was in intensive care last year and it was kind of 50-50 if she was going to pull through or not. And stuff like that is temporarily a catalyst for him to say, okay, I could potentially be in a situation where I have to look after your mom full time. So I need to get my shit together. And then there'd be a burst of energy and a burst of enthusiasm, but it just doesn't last. And similarly, my sister had a baby a few months ago and it's like, okay, I need to get in good shape for the grandkids, but it doesn't last again. And it's just like, as someone who loves that person, you just want to be like, ah, fucking do it this way. Don't do it that way. But like you identified, the family dynamic just doesn't allow for that ease of communication. And you have to also kind of cater for the mindset, I guess, of the other person too. I'm sure people are very aware that they're being judged or that maybe even family members want, you know, a different outcome for them. And I always think it's very difficult for people, especially if people have been like, if they're living in a body that's like traditionally stigmatized, I guess, in more, in a more societal sense, maybe they are aware that they need to undertake certain changes. They probably wouldn't be trying to undertake them if if they weren't aware that they needed to. And it's obviously very hard to sustain changes for some people for a number of reasons. Um, reasons beyond what I know, obviously. But yeah, it, it is challenging, whether it's a family dynamic or otherwise. You know, I've seen a lot of clients come to me and I'd love to think I offer everyone this transformative experience. It's obviously not been the case. It's very difficult to help certain people. And sometimes you know you're not going to be the trainer to change someone's life, which is obviously a very difficult pill to swallow as well. But human psychology is a wonderful sprinkle of complexity. I mean, I look at it this way and I would love if I could inject anyone and everyone who wants to lose a bit of weight with a philosophy, it would probably be this. I see the person with all their thoughts and their beliefs and their insights and their interests and their knowledge and their wisdom. And then I see stored energy, the substrate, body fat. And I see it in one sense, little more than a mathematical equation, because in that sense, I can take the emotion out of it from a purely mathematical, I guess, perspective from a losing it perspective. But it is people's history and their conditioning and their perspective and their whatever else that makes it a bit more complex. And often people see it as much more of a catastrophe and a reflection of self-worth rather than just a normal evolutionary substrate. And it can be very challenging to have a dietary approach that reflects a calm mind when you're not living in a calm mind about it. So sponsor today is Caldera Lab. As road men, we're out in all sorts of weather. And I have to say, I've really started to notice the effects of that exposure. I'm just spending too much time in the elements and the sun, the wind and the rain, and it's taken an effect. 
more fine lines, wrinkles, and visible signs of aging. When I look into the mirror some days, it's like my dad's face is looking back at me. Over the past six months or so, I've been looking to optimize all aspects of my health, and I've really focused on finding a solution to this exposure. I'm obviously not going to stop riding my bike. The culmination of my research is being Caldera Lab. I started using this product as a customer because of the depth of clinical trial data showing that this stuff really works. And I have to say, I chased them super hard to get these guys on board as a show sponsor. So how it works is they have three products and you use them in the morning and then again in the evening. The first one is the Clean Slate, which is a balancing cleanser that uses gentle plant-based cleansing, leaving your skin feeling exceptionally refreshed. The second one is the Base Layer, and this is a nutrient-dense moisturizer which hydrates your skin. And the third one is called The Good, and this is a serum which helps your skin to look younger, tighter, and smoother. The combination of these three makes up your morning and evening routines. We have an exclusive offer for our audience so you can try this for yourself and you don't have to take my word for it. You can get 20% off with our code, which is simply ROADMAN. Head on over to calderalab.com forward slash roadman and use that discount code to unlock your youthful glow and be ready for the summer. I'm going to leave that discount code and link to Caldera in today's show notes. What do you think of the whole body positivity movement? I heard someone on a podcast recently and they were quite pro-body positivity and they were condemning the idea that we can use a billboard with a a dude who's in a pair of shorts and has a six-pack and looks in good shape or the girl who's like, you know, quote-unquote beach ready, holding them up as quite unrealistic goals for society. And like I'm stepping back and thinking about it and going, yes, holding up a professional athlete as a goal and saying, this is something you can aspire to, holding up, you know, Tadej Pogacar, the best cyclist in the world at the moment. It's not realistic for anyone to think they can be Tadej Pogacar. There's a huge genetic component in that. There's a huge, you know, environmental component growing up at altitudes. You know, there's millions of dollars of development have gone into riders like that. But to get a six pack and be lean on the beach, it seems quite achievable. I'm sure there's a genetic component in it, but it's not a massive genetic component like trying to be a professional athlete. It seems like discipline and the right guidance can get most people there. So I'm still not entirely sure I agree with the speaker's point of view that that is an entirely negative goal to strive towards. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have an opinion on like what goal is worth striving for. Uh, I've always kind of considered it, man, that it's not really my job to tell people what goal to strive for. And you know, it's interesting when you observe social media trends, things tend to swing in extremes. You know, for years it was kind of some degree of unattainable physiques. And then obviously there's a, a, a subset of, say, body positivity, like all movements that go a little bit too far and make kind of audacious claims. I think the the intention behind body positivity is very well intentioned. I think it's to encourage people that don't necessarily live in your traditionally glorified bodies to get moving and to get exercising and to look after themselves a bit better. because most people probably won't be at a low enough body fat in their life to see rippling abdominals. I'm more interested in observing trends and observing culture than I am in like weighing in on what what's terrible and what's good. I used to have more of a stronger opinion, but I'm a bit more relaxed about it now. I think I think we're in a messy time in society, man. I think a lot of people are figuring out what they think about certain things. And um it's very interesting to see. If you'd have told me a few years back when I was starting Instagram, I legitimately would have said I was going to spearhead a body positivity movement before I knew what it was. But some of the claims are pretty ridiculous that like, you know, there's health seeking behaviors at all size, which is a wonderful idea. And then there's, you know, claims that you can be healthy at whatever size you want to be. And obviously that might be slightly exaggerated. But yeah, you know, as a trainer, man, I think my job is to actually show people how to lose body fat safely, and then any problems that might arise. My belief is that people who don't really know how they want fat loss and fitness to sit into their life and who never sort out their values will always kind of struggle to have that balance, I guess. Um, I know it, it sounds like a cop-out answer for your question, and I'm not copping out because I'm on a podcast. It's, it's the genuine truth. I care a lot less about it nowadays, Partly because I think there's a subset of people that like they stop playing the game, they renounce the game because they're not very good at the game. It's like if I tell you that I don't care about being fit and strong, then I get to alleviate myself of going to the gym. But at the same time, I work with a significant subset of people who 
you know, they, they do try and exhibit incredible willpower and incredible discipline and it doesn't seem to get them very far. And it's simply because people find themselves a lot trapped in like some variation of a diet binge cycle where they're almost trying to be too disciplined and use too much willpower that it consumes every waking moment and every thought to the point then that they quit because it just gets too much. Yeah. And it's kind of, you mentioned it earlier, that kind of, you know, that perfectionism and then quitting cycle, because perfectionism is just kind of preparing yourself to quit. That's what perfectionism really is. And what I've tried to get people to do is when, when you're really aligned with your values, let's say you're on holiday, like I'll give you an example, man, a client of mine messaged, two clients of mine messaged over the weekend and they told me one had pizza and one had a few drinks. Now you tell me if those decisions are inherently good or bad. It's incomplete. There's no context. There's no bigger picture. One of those ladies was in Naples on holiday in Italy having pizza, and the other was in Lisbon at a hen party with her friends. So I would argue that those two decisions are value-based. They're value-aligned. Pizza in Italy on holiday sounds smart to me. That sounds fun. I know I'd be doing it. And a hen party for a few drinks sounds smart as well. So when you are in aligned with your values, things come a little bit more clear. Like maybe then that's the thing that makes you realize, do you know what? Every time I felt like I failed a diet, I started to eat and hoover food I didn't like as a kind of, I've messed it up, I'll carry on. But then all of a sudden you get very value aligned and you don't really need discipline anymore because you look at the donuts saying, you think, I don't even like donuts. And then what looks like discipline and willpower to somebody else is actually just calm choice to you. And that restraint isn't like some inner dialogue and some battle. It's coming as a reflection of very consciously created choices that you have made. And I think you can be body positive and want to lose body weight. I think you can be body positive and never think about dieting again in your life. And I think you can absolutely hate yourself into getting shredded. And I think you can hate yourself into the body positivity movement as well. So I'm not really interested in the idea of it itself, more so the psychological mechanism that it provides, I guess. And um, that's where I'm most interested. But like, I think it's all about how it affects your life at the end of the day. As long as you've got self-awareness, as long as you've got certain skills and practices you can tap in and out of to ask yourself if you're you know, hungry, if you need to eat, if you could accept tolerable hunger, as long as you avoid strict diet rules, and as long as you strive to hold a favorable perception of yourself, wherever you are in the season of life, as you would say, that's what I'm interested in. But at what point do those exceptions, the pizza in Italy, the hen party in Poland or wherever it was, at what point do the exceptions start to become a problem? I know the only period I ever put weight on in my life was when I went on this kind of deep entrepreneurial quest and I stopped cycling. I had been a full-time cyclist and I tied a ribbon on it and I said, no, I'm grandiosely announced I'm retired. You know, it's never good enough to have a retirement, but I somehow thought, oh, I'm retired from cycling. And in my head, that gave me almost a tacit permission to put on weight, to be not active anymore. I totally lost sense of what my core values were and wasn't acting in alignment with them because I hadn't even identified what those values were. And very soon when I started making some cash, I'm not talking about a lot of cash, but I'd grown up with almost no money. And then as a pro cyclist, I'd earned basically no money. So when I had enough cash that I could go out for breakfast, that I could go out for dinner, that I could eat out in a restaurant four or five nights a week, the exceptions became the rules. Like I was single at the time and I was probably, you know, periods dating four or five nights a week and I'm going out for dinners, I'm going out for drinks. And now it's not really an exception anymore. It's not really like, oh, it's it's okay to have a dessert because you're in a restaurant. Well, I'm in a restaurant four or five nights a week. So now this is my norm. At what point does the girl going to Italy or the girl on the hen, do you start to worry about that and say, hey, you actually travel, you know, three weekends out of a month. So you need to rein this in. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it comes back to maybe doing a little bit of planning and asking yourself, like, what are the current priorities? So I know, like, in the field of psychology, when people talk about values, they think of like more underpinning character traits. So you might say trustworthiness, or, you know, authenticity or compassion or things like that. And like, that's beautiful. And that's fine. And this is my opinion, not grounded in science or anything, but they don't, those kind of values, in my opinion, they're fine. And I think they should be considered. But I haven't found they've cut to the core of any eating difficulties that a lot of people find. So I would get a tiny bit more specific and ask yourself, like, in the short to medium term, what really matters? And let's say, you think about nourishment, say weight management, social connection of some sort, and let's say gratitude. 
And then you just look at the overall dietary pattern over a seven day period and realize, are you satisfying the majority of the time those values? Like you're not looking to satisfy social interaction every breakfast or every lunch, but one or two evenings a week, it can be a great idea to do so. You're looking to maybe prioritize weight management and nourishment. So the bulk of your nutritional guidelines lend itself towards that. And then as far as gratitude, say, goes or joy, could you get the same pleasure in a weird kind of way? Could you get the same pleasure from like a glass of room temperature water that you get from a slice of pizza, like I said, in two different ways? Or could carrots provide you with the same joy as a cookie in a different kind of way, which I know sounds a little bit daft, but you know, to to be able to step back and think, well, five nights out a week with five restaurant desserts, it isn't going to align with weight management. It's probably not going to align with uh, nourishment. And then yes, social interaction, but then maybe too much of a good thing can become a bad thing. And it's just tipping, tipping or dipping, should I say, back into that wisdom of yours, that, that, that ability to practice the choice of five nights of anything won't be good. It's not going to be like the novelty will be lost. It's not a treat anymore. It becomes the norm. So it's not actually fun, really. It's going against all the values that you kind of set yourself. And pretty much over a period of time, you realize you don't feel that nourished weight is creeping up. The experience of gratitude, say, might be there, but it's not the same as when you haven't had it in a while. And social interaction, there's only so many times you want to eat out in a restaurant. So I try and get people to just frequently check back in with their values and seeing, yeah, not every goal needs to be, not every meal pattern needs to be goal oriented, but enough of them do, if that makes sense. So values are something we're coming back to time and time again. And I think you rightly identify the type of values that are maybe a little bit grandiose and aren't that practical. But what are like the examples of practical values? I know for me, one I've added in the last 12 months, it's like, I'm calling it readiness in an endurance sense. And as I'm saying that, I'm also very aware that I need to broaden that next year into a physical strength sense. Like, so readiness for me has meant that a friend can text me like right now and be like, hey, do you want to go for a 20K mountain run? And I'm like, boom, I'm down. I'm ready to go. Or do you want to go for a six-day bikepacking event? Boom, I'm ready to go. Do you want to do a five-day professional bike race? Boom, I'm ready to go. Like, I don't need a preparation period for this. You know, I can have an attempt at the Irish error record right now and I've got to go pretty close. That's the sort of readiness from an endurance point of view that I wanted to cultivate. And that's been so core to my values over the past 12 months. Now, that's one side of my sort of physical fitness coin. And as I've prioritized that, I've definitely neglected the strength piece of that. Like if you were to say to me now, hey, let's do 10 chin-ups. I don't think I get 10 chin-ups in right now. And that's a neglect piece. But what are some other examples of functional values that you've seen with either yourself or clients? That's a really great question. It comes down to, you mentioned the readiness and I really like that. That's a really nice thing to to strive towards. It comes down to what kind of person do you want to be? Do you want to be the kind of person who's compassionate towards yourself or has that underlying ability to be as compassionate to you as you would be to someone else if they made the same perceived error? You know, do you want to be able to trust yourself? Like I actually mentioned that these grandiose terms are not necessarily helpful. So and so it's a bit of an irony that I've kind of returned to them. But the only reason I have is without the without going straight back to the things I've kind of mentioned around the idea of maybe being grateful for food and maybe being able to use flexibility and use restraint. I think it's worth instead sitting down with yourself and asking yourself, you know, what kind of person do you want to be? Who do you want to show up as? Uh, I know it doesn't really count. I'm kind of cheating your question a little bit, but if we take motivation, I know a lot of fitness people tell other people that kind of motivation is bullshit and you shouldn't rely on it. And I, I, I get that to some degree. What I would say is what you're motivated by really matters. Like if you think about external motivators, that might be like, for example, a weighing scale or specifically a gold medal or specifically like you're bound by some kind of feeling of reward or some kind of punishment. I think that's a very difficult thing because if you are a cyclist and you break your leg and your whole identity is gone, that external motivation then goes with it. Similarly, if you're solely motivated by a weighing scale and then that fluctuates in either direction it might justify a specific toxic behavior that isn't in alignment with the kind of person you're trying to be but if you hold a certain standard of being a person as the motivation then i think you can become adapt i think adaptability is a great example so i'm not trying to in any way suggest a holier than thou look at me i'm so wonderful and adaptable i just want to give you an example i dislocated my shoulder 
and I had plans to go to the gym. So after the hospital, I went to the gym anyway. And I just did some light TRX Bulgarian split squats and some hollow body holds. And the, the receptionist was laughing at me. This is back in 2018. They were laughing at me when I told them, yeah, I'm just out of the hospital. But I had planned to go to the gym. And it's not one of those toxic deny your feelings. It's actually the opposite. I, I really felt like keeping the habit of doing some light movement would be good for me. Um, because I am the f- kind of person to give myself the ability to relax and chill out when I need to. It's a, it's a generally quite a calm place in my head. So like adaptability is a really good one so that you are motivated by being a certain kind of person rather than completely extrinsically motivated. And look, there's certain times that information lands. I'm sure people will have heard that kind of thing before. But if you can kind of see the the motivation runs on a continuum from like external validation on one extreme and kind of goes along the spectrum all the way to completely like internal, I think the closer you can get to that internal, the kind of person you want to be, it might be hard to get there entirely. We're all driven by something external. I think you'd be lying if you said otherwise. But I think then you can actually strive on being a person of a certain characteristic rather than a person who's achieved a certain thing. Like Anthony, we all know the, the cliche of the unhappy millionaire or the like the influencer with the eating disorder, right? And there's a joke with me and my girlfriend have where we're joking about why are so many fitness people messed up And she's just like, because the normal people are just, you know, drinking some wine and having fun with their friends. They're not on Instagram talking about it. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I I hope that kind of answers your question. I know I didn't give many values in that respect because it's... I think adaptability is a brilliant one because I chatted to a guy, Nick Kumalasas, and, you know, we're 750 episodes deep in the podcast where I was to put my hand on five conversations that really changed my life. The one with Nick Kumalasas was one. I can't remember if it was on air or off air, but something that I've scribed in my journal time and time again is a phrase he used called work the problem. And in so many different respects, work the problem. Whether you're in a military combat zone and stuff, you don't have a favorable outcome with something you'd planned. It's like, okay, well, this is the situation we're in. These are the facts that we can't change. We can piss and we can moan about these facts and point fingers and blame other people, or we can work the problem and see how do we get a positive outcome from the facts that we have at the moment. I think it's such a good trait for athletes. I've broken collarbones. Like just because you break a collarbone doesn't mean it's time to chill. Doesn't mean you can just, everything else in your life can just be like an exhale. Ah, now it's time to chill. Now I go on the piss. Now I let my mental health atrophy. It's like, it's a broken collarbone. Your leg's not broken. You can still get on the turbo trainer. You can still, you know, control your macros. You can still practice your sports psychology. You can still progress in other areas of your life. That adaptability and working the problem is such an amazing attribute, I think. It's choosing a behavior and then fully accepting the consequence. What do you mean by that? I think it's too easy to lie to yourself and say, well, you know, things are going against me. I'm just going to press the fuck it button completely and I'll deal with the consequences tomorrow. I'll be back on the diet tomorrow, that kind of way. But as someone who, as a, who's a trainer who in no way obsesses over calorie balance, that's not how calorie balance works. It's kind of like throwing away you know, throwing away 500 euros out of frustration because you spent a tenner you weren't planning on and then starting (laughs) saving tomorrow. And if you want to go on a spending spree and spend a load of money, you're welcome to do so. But there is definitely a consequence to that, which is having that amount of money less. And if you're willing to accept that consequence, then you're golden. But when things aren't going your way and then you maybe choose a series of, um, I guess, maladaptive behaviors, there is consequences to that. And the only reason I say that is I, I do see I've probably seen it a lot in the kind of the diet world. And I don't blame clients. This is complete diet conditioning. It really is. It's those intrusive thoughts that are completely encouraged by the the traditional diet mentality. But I've tried to encourage people to take autonomy and to take power back with kindness and compassion, but also reminding them that any action we take has a consequence, some good, some not so good. And um, yeah, just, I'm trying to empower people to, remi- to remind themselves that during more testing times, they still have the power between that stimulus and the response they choose is the choice, if that makes sense. Well, there's a gap, I think, that people miss in between stimulus and response. And I've tried to broaden that gap between stimulus and response in plenty areas of my life. Like on the bike, you know, we had a tragic accident a few weeks back where uh, a local girl out training uh, tragically got hit out with her boyfriend and died in her 20s, beautiful girl. And In the wake of that, cyclists around Dublin, you can see they're wound tighter. A close pass happens every day of the week, but people are just wound tighter and they're more reactive to it. And I found myself 
default into that position of reactivity. And I had to understand that there is a gap between that stimulus, the car whizzing past me on the close pass, and my reaction to that, deciding to lose my shit. Because that doesn't change the outcome. The car's already gone past me. The damage is done there. All that's happening now is I'm letting that spoil the rest of my day. But by pausing for a second and even just being aware that there's a gap or I can breathe deep or I can reflect and choose that response. It sounds a little bit arrogant to say you can choose that response, but it it is possible with a little bit of discipline to choose that response in between the stimulus and the outcome. Yeah, in in any, I guess in any discipline or any like field, whether it's nutrition or cycling, I think the best coaches, the best people, the best, say, guides, if it's kind of the same idea as what you're saying, they are trying to lead people to being the, the best, most empowered version of themselves. I know it sounds so so cliche, but you don't want to be the, the guru worshiper or you don't want to be, if I may take it back to dieting, I know you're talking about cycling, and you don't want to be the person that's relying on different strict rules or different diets or different information or different influences. You don't want to be relying on me for the rest of your life. You want to, you know, it's one thing having a lot of information. It's one thing knowing how to cycle your bicycle and how to, but if you don't know the direction you're taking that bicycle when you hop on it, there's no coach in the world that's going to make it fun for you. If you're, if you, if you know all of the what and all of the theory, but you never take it onto the road and then just go in a specific direction alone and aren't afraid to make the mistakes. And I don't think the, the journey obviously can't be as enriching as it could be. So, you know, you, as you've kind of alluded to, you're going to meet obstacles along the way, some very undesirable ones, some spontaneous ones. And learning to navigate those. I think there's an, a concept, I, I, I think they call it urge surfing. I should probably check it before I actually start speaking about it. It's just something I heard recently. But it's one of those concepts that just intuitively makes sense where my, my understanding of it, and I, I could be wrong here, is just the idea to maybe have, feel a specific emotion or an urge, but actually feel it and assess it and um, think about it and sit with it before you actually choose the response that you're going to take with it. And... Um, yeah, I don't know if that's kind of what you're alluding to, but it's kind of as I understood it, I guess. Paul, I've loved this conversation. I'm going to link up all your socials and your website, and I can't recommend Paul's coaching and guidance highly enough. Uh, you are without blowing smoke up your hole, Paul. If I could have a guest on the podcast five, six days a week, I would chat to you every day of the week. I just love these conversations every time you're on. So thanks again for taking the time to reappear on the Roadmap Podcast. Man, the pleasure is mine. Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, dude, I have to say. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.